0: This podcast is brought to you by Reynolds and Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Learn how inadequate data may be impacting your used vehicle department at rayray.com slash used cars. That's re slash used dash cars.
1: Want to dive deeper into the topics you hear about on Daily Drive? We're offering listeners a special offer, 20% off a one-year automotive news digital subscription. That gets you access to all of our news information and analysis made for automotive industry leaders like you go to autonews.com slash Daily Drive promo to redeem. Welcome to Daily Drive for Monday, December 18th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, executive editor
2: of Automotive News here in Detroit. And I'm Kellen Walker in Las Vegas. Today on the show, the Tesla Model 3 is about to lose its federal EV tax credit. U.S. Steel will sell to Japan's Nippon Steel, and the top U.S. auto safety regulator is stepping down. Plus, we'll look back at the UAW's historic year and what's coming for the union in 2024.
3: A lot of what they got, I think, can be credited to the union's aggressiveness. I don't think there is anything on the table that they possibly could have gotten that they backed off of.
2: Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. The Tesla sedan that sparked a consumer
1: craze comparable to the iPhone will lose the federal $7,500 EV tax credit on January 1st. That's when battery sourcing rules tighten under the Inflation Reduction Act. The Model 3 is Tesla's least expensive vehicle. Analysts say the loss of the tax break will likely put additional downward pressure on sales for the compact sedan that could push the EV maker to further cut prices in the U.S. Tesla has confirmed the loss of the Model 3 tax incentive on its website. It says the Model 3 performance trim level will still get the credit. Tesla did not explain why the base and long-range Model 3 trim levels are losing the incentive, The company sources batteries in the U.S. in partnership with Panasonic, but also imports battery cells from outside the U.S. All Model 3 trim levels are still eligible for the $7,500
2: credit when leased. Japan's Nippon Steel says it plans to buy U.S. Steel in a deal worth about $15 billion, including debt. U.S. Steel is a longtime strategic supplier to the North American auto industry. The company has been considering possible sales since mid-August after rejecting an offer from rival Cleveland Cliffs for more than $7 billion. Nippon Steel is focusing on the U.S., which it sees as a growth market. That's amid sliding demand in the Japanese market due to the declining birth rate. According to a Nikkei report, it would be the largest purchase ever for Nippon Steel.
1: The acting head of NHTSA is stepping down. Acting Administrator Ann Carlson has been overseeing the agency's investigation into Tesla autopilot safety issues, as well as efforts to strengthen fuel efficiency regulations. She has run the agency since September 2022. Carlson told employees in an email that she will leave her post on December 26th because of a law limiting how long officials can remain in a temporary role. Carlson was chief counsel at NHTSA beginning in 2021. She says she will serve in that former chief counsel role until the end of January before leaving the agency. NHTSA Deputy Administrator Sophie Schulman will serve as acting administrator. Schulman was previously deputy chief of staff for policy at the Transportation Department and has also served at the Department of Energy, Office of
2: Management and Budget, and the White House Domestic Policy Council. And self-driving technology company May Mobility says it will begin driverless service Monday at one of its flagship locations. The company says its autonomous Toyota Sienna minivans will ferry select residents of a retirement community in Sun City, Arizona, along public roads. Residents must first be approved to join the company's early rider program before accessing the service. Removing human backups constitutes a big milestone for May Mobility. The startup was founded in 2017 and is backed by Toyota. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, most Tesla Model 3s won't qualify for the $7,500 EV tax credit beginning in January, but will be eligible if leased. Is this when we see an instant rise in leased Model 3s, especially since EVs aren't holding value, Would leasing one be the smarter move for consumers?
1: Leasing is clearly beneficial for consumers because they don't have to worry about it. They can make sure they get the $7,500 all up front. The bigger problem is the risk that it puts on the companies, on the finance companies. When the company leases out a vehicle, they're promising to buy it back at a set price, you know, three years down the road. You look at the way EV prices are falling, it could be very easy to uh, misestimate to make an error in in those projections they end up having to pay you know five thousand, maybe even ten thousand dollars more uh, to buy back the off lease vehicles than they are worth. and that can get really costly in a hurry. So a lot of times you see companies they they really don't want to lease uh, more than you know thirty percent or so. I think some are going to push it farther than that with the EV tax credits the way they're structured. I think there's gonna be some limits there, so it'll be a real test. So is this when Tesla cuts prices again? Would that make more sense? It's very possible. Uh, Depends, of course, on their profitability and their other demand around the rest of the world. But if you look at the way that Tesla behaved, the way that Elon Musk uh, managed pricing when other companies started getting the Inflation Reduction Act tax credits and Tesla wasn't yet available for them, cut prices by about $7,500 across the board, so uh, maybe that
2: will happen again. Gotcha. Coming up, it was quite a year for the United Auto Workers. We'll take a detailed look at what the UAW accomplished in 2023 and its goals for the new year. That's next on Daily Drive. The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality
4: is here and it's accelerating, but is it enough? This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril, but also a moment of extraordinary
1: possibilities. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that.
4: Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future. And we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is is GM believes in an all-electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like,
3: but, but we, we
4: don't. Spoiler alert, they came around to that idea. Find out how and much more. I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero. Available now wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Lack of inventory, increased auction fees, and a volatile market means stocking your lot can be challenging these days. To be successful, you have to move fast. You need to make decisions quickly at auction. You need to inspect trade-ins and decide on an offer that will benefit you without slowing down the sales process. You need to appraise and price vehicles with the most up-to-date information possible in a market that can change quickly. But the data you rely on to make these decisions could be holding you back. How often do you find yourself manually filtering through comps because there are outliers that don't match the vehicle you're appraising? When unexpected mechanical issues come up, how much time do you have to spend looking back through comps to reprice the vehicle and determine if the reconditioning costs are worth it? How long do you spend searching through individual auction and third-party websites for the inventory you need? These problems affect the entire used vehicle process from acquisition to appraisal to merchandising. Visit rayray.com slash usedcars to explore how old and irrelevant vehicle information may be holding you back and discover how to make improvements for faster, more accurate, and more profitable decisions. That's R-E-Y, rey.com slash used cars.
1: Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. Each year at the end of December, we take some time to reflect on the biggest stories in the auto industry over the past 12 months, and there was no bigger story than the UAW's historic strike against the Detroit Three and the record contract wins it was able to achieve. Michael Martinez worked tirelessly throughout the year to bring us the latest news about the UAW on the pages of Automotive News, on our website, autonews.com, and right here on Daily Drive. He kicks off our series of year-end conversations with a look at all things UAW in 2023 and what's ahead in 2024. We spoke at Automotive News Headquarters in Detroit. Mike Martinez, welcome back to Daily Drive. Thanks for having me. All right, so we're doing our year-end review uh, roundups and one of your two main beats has been the UAW. It's been uh, quite a year of UAW coverage. Let's Go back to the beginning. You know, at the start of the year, was Ray Curry the president at the start of the year, or did he come in actually during 23?
3: Yeah, no, he was still the president. There was a lot left to figure out. The elections had happened the previous November, and nothing had been settled yet. And the run for president went to a runoff.
1: Went to a runoff. Even then was extremely close. It looked like it was going to be contested into and... up to and into the uh, Constitutional Convention. Uh, But Ray Curry stood down, let Sean Fain, the reformer, have his shot.
3: Literally 24 hours before (laughs) their convention to prepare for maybe some of the most consequential contract bargaining that they were going to have in quite some time. New president takes over, first ever direct election, really historic, a lot of change happening at once, and that really carried on through the rest of the year.
1: And of course, I mean, I'm sure our audience knows, but just to remember for historical context, right? This is in the wake of a, a massive scandal, sent two former UAW presidents to prison, at least briefly. Uh, several other officials from the union, from Stellantis, uh, you know, just a, a lot. Of the, a federal monitor in house, still in house, uh, keeping an eye on things to make sure that they're following all the rules.
3: Exactly. And this was really the sign that the membership wanted change. Now, to be fair, not a lot of the membership voted, but those who did really showed an appetite for something different. Even though Ray Curry was never implicated in the corruption scandal, him and, and Rory Gamble, his predecessor, were both pretty clean, straight, you know, uh, got the house in order kind of guys. But the membership wanted to move beyond that sort of system that had the leaders hand select their successors. And now they have the power and they elected someone who ultimately delivered for them.
1: Well, as you noted, it was such a a low turnout, you know, and close election. I mean, my takeaway all through this process has been that Sean Fain was elected with no mandate, no base, and no machine that his predecessors all had. It was really a challenge for him to take control and take the lead of the union. But boy, did he do that in a big way.
3: Exactly. And to your point, he really had to do this on the fly. There were some transition memos that leaked that sort of laid out what they wanted to do. And they called it a contract campaign, really getting the membership unified and ready to go up against the Detroit Three. Typically, you'd take a whole year to establish that contract campaign. They had a couple months and they were still able to be effective and get the rank and file really on the same page and prepared to strike and prepared to hold out until they got a lot of what they wanted.
1: This all happens, you know, this chaos within the UAW all happens against a backdrop of a really surging labor movement in America. Uh, Labor is as popular now as it's been in 60 years. And there were some other strikes, UAW and non-UAW organizing and and strikes uh, around the country. We saw uh, battery Manufacturer Clarios, uh, the aluminum company, Constellium, but uh, maybe on a bigger stage, uh, Mack Truck, uh, UPS had really tense negotiations that narrowly avoided a strike. How did all that play into what we ended up seeing with the UAW?
3: Well, I think you can even go a year or two back and talk about companies like John Deere mm. or Case New Holland mm-hmm. and some of the, the labor strife we've seen there. Again. You mentioned maybe other industries as well, uh, whether it's it's the Hollywood writer's strike or things of that nature.
1: Amazon, Starbucks. Yeah.
3: And really the UAW was able to ride this wave of momentum and really channel a lot of frustration that I think the working class at large has felt, whether it's been the pandemic or effects like inflation and feel like. They are not getting their slice of the pie and the UAW was able to use that to hammer the companies and say, we need everything we lost back in the recession. We need everything we've lost, even in the good years when inflation has sort of drugged down our wages. We need that all back now.
1: And uh, so before we get to how much of that they got, you. Um, there was some bruised feelings along the way. I mean, he really focused. He came out right out of the gate with, you know, the automaker is our enemy. They are the, the one true enemy. And for some company, I think for most of the companies, but especially, you know, for Ford, where, you know, Bill Ford has been deeply involved in UAW talks, labor relations uh, since he started at the company, it really kind of stung.
3: I think so. Now, let's be honest here. You know, the union got some pretty great results, but how they got there, a little questionable at times. Uh, You saw some really nasty rhetoric, honestly, on both sides. Mm. You know, as you mentioned, Sean Fing came in on that convention, his first day in office, calling the automakers the enemy, saying they needed to prepare for war. The automakers came out swinging. You saw Mary Barra and Farley say things that they typically never say. They're very sort of calm, cool, and collected, <laughs> accusing the union, accusing Sean Fain of hijacking the agenda for his own purposes. Ultimately, though, I, I think this was a, a set of negotiations where no matter who was president, no matter who was in charge, the union was going to win a lot back. Mm-hmm. Just all the conditions were there and, and right for the taking. But because of the aggressiveness that the union showed and the different tactics Mm -hmm. they had in terms of their strike and their messaging, I think they won a lot more than they otherwise would have.
1: You know, it was interesting. uh, There was all this hostile rhetoric and, and hurt feelings on both sides, but the way they did this strike, uh, Mark labeled as a a stand up strike to echo the sit down strike from the sit down strikes from the thirties, but they really were less damaging economically than, even the strike against GM four years earlier.
3: For sure. I think each of the automakers has said the strike cost them around a billion bucks, give or take a couple hundred million. <laughs> uh, in 2019, it cost GM 3 billion, mm. right? And these strikes lasted longer than the strike against GM. So at the end of the day, if you're the companies, this was not as bad as it could have been.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, you gave up a lot more, but if you would have continued to hold out, you know, the union wasn't going to crack anytime soon. And that strike would have add it up. So at the end of the day, it was a cost-benefit analysis. Hey, we give them the raises they want, we add, throw in a couple more percentages here and there, and finally we can end this and move forward.
1: I mean, there were some pretty extreme asks up front, like a four-day work week and 42% raises, but they still got 25% in, you know, like nominal raises, which are going to compound, and then there's the cost of living adjustments, very rich contracts
3: really life-changing contracts. I don't think that's hyperbole to say, especially for a lot of the younger, newer workers who were making really as low as 16 bucks an hour. And now, you know, at the end of this deal in 2028, those same workers could be up into the 40s in the hourly rate. So a lot of what they got, I think can be credited to, to the union's aggressiveness. I don't think there is anything on the table that they possibly could have gotten that, they backed off of. The, some of the things you mentioned that they didn't get were just so pie in the sky. I don't Define think was, benefit
1: pensions was the other big one. It was never going
3: to happen under any circumstance. Mm-hmm. And, so, and maybe they could have used that as leverage and say, okay, well, all right, well, we'll drop that, but give us a couple more in the percentage raise. So we come to the
1: end and then there's not, I mean, there's peace, there's detente at least, uh, but not really a kumbaya moment between the union and the automakers. There's still- calling each other enemies.
3: Well, I think in 2024 here and moving forward, it's going to be really interesting to see how this relationship evolves because the union's already moving on to its next phase, which it wants to parlay these contract wins into organizational wins and bring in a lot of the non-union companies to grow its base. And it's saying Ford, GM, and Stellantis have always opposed that. They want it to be the union workforce against the non-union companies. And now Sean Fein saying, hey, wait, these are going to be our future members. We're not going to go with you to be against them. We're going to try to bring them in the fold too." do. You, is that right?
1: Has the D3 been opposed to organ? I mean, that was uh, Lee Iacocca's argument back in the 80s, 70s and 80s was, hey, make these companies come to America and deal with American workers and presumably the American Union and see how they do then, you know, smart guys.
3: Well, this was again a sign of that animosity during the talks because bill ford came out there and in one of his speeches he said listen this should be not ford versus the uaw this should be ford and the uaw versus everybody else who's trying to steal our market share Mm -hmm. and sean fain shot back "Eh, not anymore
1: (laughs) right so what do we think what's the outlook for the uaw to organize tesla or toyota or
3: honda it's going to be a really steep hill to climb the union has tried for decades to organize the American South and tried to organize Tesla in California. And aside from some victories, Freightliner, Daimler trucks here and there, it's almost exclusively failed when you think about multiple attempts at Volkswagen, multiple attempts at Nissan. It just hasn't happened for a variety of factors. I don't know if they can overcome everything that's doomed them in the past, but arguably they have maybe their best shot than they've had in quite some time given the overall sentiment Mm -hmm. for unions given the friend they have in the white house this could be the right time to strike
1: of course we've seen a lot of those automakers offer uh, or just grant their employees pretty significant wage increases comparable to the 10 11 12 percent that uh, uaw and unifor workers are getting this year and i guess we'll see how closely they track in the in the future
3: it's going to be fascinating to watch every single play by play of how this happens because the automakers are doing this to stop unionization. Now Sean Fain's gonna come out and he'll have his response and we'll see we'll see that that dance that they do. The union um and it sort of gets into the
1: politics and you mentioned Joe Biden, right? It's like uh usually Democrats and unions are kind of on the same side, at least in terms of uh, labor versus capital, labor versus management, uh, but not always on the environment because the union's uh, financial health comes from selling big trucks and SUVs that make a lot of money, the same as the companies that employ them. And of course, we have an administration that's really trying to push EVs and fuel economy Uh, how does that tension play out?
3: Well, it seems like they're trying to get on the same page. I think even Sean Fein's predecessors have said, yeah, we're a little concerned about the potential job losses from EVs, about the whole question of demand for that kind of product, but we're on board as long as we can make them good union paying jobs. And Sean Fein's largely taken that same stance. He's rebranded it as he's often done with a lot of things since he's been in office, he calls it a just transition. He wants the transition to this green economy to benefit the working class. And he's had discussions with President Biden and his administration to make sure that happens. Step one is starting to get that work under that master agreement at the same pay rates as some of these gasoline-powered assembly plants and powertrain plants. And we're starting to see that because of these contract deals.
2: We
1: mentioned Joe Biden. One of the other things that was just so historic about this year and these talks was Joe Biden showing up at a picket line to speak to the UAW. I mean, it's pretty rare for presidents to get involved. Usually if they get involved at all in a labor dispute, it's just to encourage the leaders to come together and and find a solution, not choosing sides and kind of rooting for labor against the companies.
3: Again, I think this was another instance where You have to credit Sean Fain and the union's aggressiveness because he's withheld his endorsement of Joe Biden. And he said, listen, we need people that are going to stand up for us. And he almost bullied the president in a way into joining that picket line and stating his support for the union's cause for those significant raises. And by the way, for organizing all the other non-union plans, I don't think you would have gotten that show of support if the union just would have gone the traditional route, sort of rubber stamp endorsement for the Democrat and move on.
1: Michael Martinez, staff reporter here at automotive news covers UAW. And I guess you'll keep covering them next year.
3: And the year after that. <laughs> Thanks,
2: Jamie. Thanks Mike. That's daily drive for today. I'm Jamie butters. And I'm Kalman Walker. Thanks to automotive news, coordinating producer, Jake Neer, as well as our own Lawrence, I and Pete Bigelow for their reporting for today's podcast. You can get the latest news on UAW organizing efforts, EV tax credits, everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com come back tomorrow for another conversation with our own
1: michael martinez about the year ford had in 2023
3: arguably they haven't really improved much in terms of those quality woes they continue to lead or be near the top of the industry in terms of recalls warranty costs continue to hurt their quarterly results but they are making money.
1: If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode.